trying to free your mind, Neo. But I can only show you the door. You're the one that has to walk through it. Welcome everyone to the Origins Podcast. This is your host Paul and this is episode 113. This show is entitled The Five Worst Inventions from Brilliant Inventors. everyone to the little piece of music entitled Here at Last, I'm Here at Last, and boy have things conspired against me for the last few weeks. First of all I had a good dose of the flu and lost my voice for nearly two weeks and that wasn't fun when you're trying to teach in the gardens in a big open space with hardly any voice. Secondly I went on a holiday with my wife out to the west of our state, a holiday that we really needed after the traumatising things we had to do earlier in the year with regards to the flooding. And then I was being a good Samaritan. My boss, who was also a flood victim, had bought herself a new unit after the flood and I was helping her to paint the inside of that. And now the outside of my house is being painted, so there's all sorts of sanding and scraping and bashing going on, so I'm trying to record this in amongst all of that. Anyway, that's enough background information. Don't want to bore you too much with what's been happening in my life, so on with the podcast. Let's start with the lead story for the podcast this week, and this comes from the www.asylum.co.uk website. The Five Worst Inventions from Brilliant Inventors Some of history's greatest minds brought forth revolutionary technologies and ideas like the light bulb, the telephone and the phonograph. But that same grey matter also created more worthless tat than Pound Store can sell. You can't win them all, right? Keep listening to hear five of the worst ideas ever to come from Earth's brightest minds. Leonardo da Vinci's Water Walking Shoes 
The wild and zany mind of this designer and painter conceived some of the craziest inventions that never worked, even when technology and innovation finally caught up with them. Sadly, water walking technology has not yet reached the point of necessity. The device was basically skis with pontoons in place of feet and two flat-ended poles to keep the water from eating water. Unfortunately, it had no sense of engineering and Da Vinci's purpose of incorporating the device into military warfare to allow soldiers to reach enemy boats made even less sense. It might have worked if you didn't die from laughter. Thomas Edison's Helicopter Edison wasn't the first to devise a flying machine, but if craziness could be measured, Edison's design would certainly win. Edison patented a device that was simply a series of box kites that rotated on a vertical axis and then built a craft that looked like a mutated offspring of an airplane and a helicopter. Neither of them took off. He never attempted the patent design and the one he actually built wasn't powerful enough to get off the ground. Edison then thought back to the day that the light bulb went off in his brain and decided to make that thing instead. Alexander Graham Bell's Six Nipple Sheep The father of the telephone spent an inordinate amount of time with sheep and while some who do so find, shall we say, unproductive ways of passing the time, Bell attempted something more productive. He spent his life attempting to breed sheep with six nipples instead of the normal two, but was unable to produce any more beyond the flock he already had. Elihu Thompson's Steam-Powered Car Thompson's genius provided the world with electric welding, generators and the safer use of x-rays. But his attempt at creating a car that didn't produce that stinky exhaust smell was a failure. As one of the founders of General Electric, he developed a steam-powered vehicle that actually worked. If you didn't mind driving a car, that took about a week to run to the shop for a loaf of bread. While the world mourned the loss of its attempt at efficient engineering, oil companies, Saudi Arabian royalty and inhalant huffers continue to celebrate. Thomas Edison's Ghost Machine During a time when the world thought anyone could communicate with the dead by paying some bejeweled gypsy who sounds foreign to fake seizures, Edison said he had found a way to do the same thing with science. The inventor claimed he had done so in separate magazine interviews through his famed workshop that held over 1,000 patents. But the machine, much like evidence of ghosts or the afterlife, never materialised. And while we're thinking along the line of inventions, I found this article on the www.todayifoundout.com website. Why do zippers have YKK on them?
The YKK stands for Yoshida Kogyo Kabush Ikikaishi. Say that five times fast. In 1934, Tadeo Yoshida founded the company which translates to Yoshida Industries Limited. This company is now the world's foremost zipper manufacturer, making about 90% of all zippers in over 206 facilities in 52 countries. In fact, they not only make the zippers, they also make the machines that make the zippers. No word on if they make the machines that make the parts that make up the machines that make the zippers. Their largest factory is in Georgia and makes over 7 million zippers per day. In any event, Mr. Yoshida's company zipped to number one by practicing the cycle of goodness, as he called it. Namely, no one prospers unless he renders benefits to others. Using this principle, he endeavoured to create the best zippers out there that would hold up over long periods of time in the end product. This in turn would benefit both the manufacturers who used his zippers and the end customers. And these things benefit his company with higher repeat and referral sales, thus completing the cycle of goodness. So next time you're zipping up, take a moment to remember Mr. Yoshida. Also, if you're going commando, careful with Captain Winky on the zip up. I can't stress that enough. When I was a young boy, I used to borrow books from the school library or the local library and read about space and the spacecraft that were being developed at the time, and one of them was the space shuttle. I looked with great interest at the prototypes, and when the space shuttle was eventually launched, I thought, wow, what a wonderful thing. And now I reflect back on it, it's gone. It's finished. Where did all that time go? And so I read with interest this article from the CNN, What Happened to the Romance of Space by Todd Leopold. And I quite often wonder myself, what did happen to the romance of space? I lived through the 60s, through the excitement of it all, but that seems to have gone. I wonder if we will ever get that romance, that excitement with the space program ever again. Anyway, no more reflections from me and my worries about how I seem to be getting old really fast. Rick Chappell remembers being stirred by President John F. Kennedy's call to put a man on the moon. It was the early 1960s. America was very different then, says Chappell, a former NASA scientist who's now a consultant and professor at Vanderbilt University. 
We'd finished World War II and the Korean War. The economy was booming. There was a spirit of the possible that was much stronger then than now. Regular exploration, even colonisation of the final frontier, seemed just around the corner. Astronauts were heroes and the world depicted in the 1968 movie 2001 A Space Odyssey, Pan Am branded space shuttles, moon bases and a Jupiter mission seemed possible to achieve in the next decades. But here we are, 10 years after 2001, Pan Am has long since gone out of business. The space station isn't a regular tourist stop. Forget Jupiter or those moon bases. Humans haven't even set foot on the lunar surface since 1972. The space shuttle which has now completed its last mission has been a useful machine. A fantastic vehicle in the words of a NASA rocket scientist. But it's rarely ignited public fascination the way the 60s and 70s moonshots did. What could get people excited again? Chapel believes he knows. If you wanted to take a small step, you'd go to the moon and live there for a while. But Americans are big on being there, done that, he says. One answer, he says, is a big step. Mars. A mission to Mars would be the ultimate challenge. The red planet is almost 32 million miles away at its closest point to Earth, almost 130 times the distance between the Earth and the Moon. The overall mission would last more than two years, with one-way transit to Mars taking up several months and solar system mechanics requiring a stay of more months before heading back to Earth. It would be costly, dangerous and full of unknowns. And yet that challenge is exactly why we should go, Chapel says. A trip to Mars could be the big idea to reignite interest in space in general. Apollo 11 astronaut Buzz Aldrin agrees. The second man to set foot on the moon remembers the thrill of the early days. The days embedded in the grounds of Rocket City, Huntsville, Alabama, where NASA got off the ground, and Florida's space coast. Aldrin sees a trip to Mars as a challenge to rivals such as the Chinese, another way for the US to assert global leadership and stake a flag in the future. Why go back to the moon when it's quite possible for us to explore a romance of longer duration? Flying by comets, visiting small objects, and then moving toward an entirely new planet that has much more livable conditions. That's a bit more romantic from my standpoint, he says, while scoffing at the word romance. Another former astronaut, Garrett Reisman, says he believes space exploration can be a good tool for inspiring young people. The 1957 Sputnik launch, aside from igniting the space race, also created a fervour to improve maths and science education in the United States. Reisman, who spent three months in space in 2008 and went up with STS-132 in May 2010, uses his own experiences as a way to engage the imagination and try to get people fired up, he says. 
There's a real crisis in this country trying to get young people interested in science and technology to fill the jobs in engineering and the sciences. They have to realise what they learn in the classroom isn't necessarily an end to itself. Duke University historian Alex Rowland questions some of Reisman's assertions. In his experience, the idea of space doesn't inspire most children to be engineers, it inspires them to be astronauts. And that's a very small pool of perhaps unnecessary positions, he says. Roland, a former historian for NASA, defends the unmanned programs some see as lacking romance. I think the automated program has been, by and large, very good. That's why I say NASA misrepresents what it does. It is always trumpeting manned spaceflight, and they hide under a bushel all their achievements in unmanned spaceflight. They think manned is the key to the future. Part of the problem, Rowland says, is that the post-moonshot NASA has been a victim of cost cuts and compromise. NASA had a big planning process and came up with a document that they called the next logical step. And for NASA, that has always been a mission to Mars, he says. And no one was buying it then for all kinds of reasons. So they invented the shuttle as an interim measure and they used the same rubric the next logical step. The idea, he says, was that the shuttle would lead to a space station, which then would lead to a Mars mission. But lack of money hamstrung NASA then, and continues to do so. Though the allocation for the space agency has more or less remained constant in dollars, by a percentage of the overall budget, it's been in decline, with one small uptick in the late 80s for about 45 years. The current era finds NASA in a similar position to that of the mid-70s, searching for its next mission amid a budget crunch. It may also be that in an era of whiz-bang computer-generated movies and real-time video monitoring, our honeymoon with space is over. More than ever, we're aware that even getting into orbit is a painstaking process with inherent dangers, as shuttle tragedies have reminded us. Perhaps it's better to leave manned spaceflight to business and let NASA engage people with research. In recent years, such companies as Virgin Galactic have been trying to arrange regular flights of space tourists. In Virgin's case, using a successor to the prize-winning spacecraft, designed by pilot and aerospace entrepreneur Bert Rutan. All the evidence tells us that manned spaceflight is much more expensive, much more difficult, much more dangerous and much less productive than we're told it was going to be, Dukes Rowland said. Furthermore, machines can now do things that were unimaginable during the Apollo program. As a rule of thumb, any mission that's automated costs one-tenth as much as one with people on it. Still, says Aldrin, space tourism may be well and good, but it's not the kind of thinking that will fire people up about the heavens. I think the post-space shuttle era should go to places we haven't been before, he says. Moreover, he adds, we have to follow through and develop that new frontier not just let the program disappear so some future historians can wonder about the value of it all.
The expense of going to Mars requires that we commit to a permanence there and not bring people back once they've been there for a short time, he says. If we've done that three or four times and nobody's there, then I'm sure Congress will find another way to spend the money and all of that effort of sending people there will have been wasted. It's a huge decision, but it will take lots of planning and lots of money. But after all, there is stargazing, and then there is manned space travel. It is the latter, supporters maintain, that stirs men's souls. Exploring space is our effort to become immortal, science fiction author Ray Bradbury once said. If we stay here on Earth, human beings are doomed, because someday the sun will either explode or go out. By going out into space, First, back to the moon, then to Mars, and then beyond, man will live forever. From the www.worddetective.com Cockeyed Dear Word Detective, how did the word cockeyed originate? I checked your archives and was surprised to find it was not there. Genie Me too. I've half a mind to report myself to the person in charge of such things. In fact, I hereby demand an official investigation of my malfeasance preferably conducted in Honolulu. I can't take much more of the weather around here. Cockeyed is an interesting word. It first appeared in print in the early 19th century, although we can assume it had already been in oral use for some time prior to that date, and since that time it has developed a number of meanings. Its original use was to mean squint-eyed, as if, for instance, the person was displaying a sceptical or suspicious aptitude, or, of course, simply suffering from myopia. By the 1890s, cockeyed had developed nearly the opposite meaning, that of wide-eyed, unrealistic and perhaps slightly crazy. This is the sense of cockeyed in the song Cockeyed Optimist from the 1949 Rodgers and Hammerstein musical South Pacific. I have heard people rant and rave and bellow that we're done and we might as well be dead, but I'm only a cockeyed optimist and I can't get it into my head. We also used cockeyed to describe anything unrealistic, eccentric or flamboyantly unconventional from artistic expression. Her cockeyed melodies, emphatic beats and creative vocal arrangements are unusual but catchy. To building code violations. In that cockeyed shack with a roof so low that I could stand up only on one side. 
Cockeyed is also used as a synonym for askew. When it's summer in the north, it's winter in the south. Completely cockeyed. And to mean literally out of alignment. Bob's car wouldn't do over 10 miles per hour because of the cockeyed wheel. Given the range of uses of cockeyed to mean not quite right, it's not surprising that in the early 20th century, it also became a popular colloquial term to mean drunk. You're cockeyed, I said. On wine? Why not? There are two theories as to the origin of cockeyed. One simple and one devilishly complicated and vague. The simple story traces cockeye to an Irish and Gaelic word meaning wink. I like this theory because agreeing with it means I get to go home early. Oh, all right. The more complicated theory traces the cock in cockeyed to cock meaning a male bird, especially a male chicken. This cock crops up in a large number of English words and uses, variously carrying the sense of either to stick or stand up, or to tilt or bend at an angle. To cock a gun, for instance, is to set the hammer at an angle in preparation for firing, and to cock one's hat means to wear it at a jaunty tilt. But when a horse cocks its ears, they stand straight up like a rooster strutting through the barnyard, and when we say that someone is being cocky, we're evoking that same image of an arrogant rooster's exaggerated upright posture. The two senses are not really opposed in practice, however. When one cocks one nose, one is simply tilting it upward. Within this cloud of cockiness, the phrase to cock one's eye arose in the middle of the 18th century, meaning as Francis Gross defined in his classical dictionary of the vulgar tongue, to shut one's eye, presumably a gesture of mockery or scepticism. The Oxford English Dictionary suggests that the phrase also meant to turn the eye with a knowing look. Timothy put on his hat, cocked his eye at me and left us alone. This usage seems a pretty clear precursor to cockeyed, at least in the squint sense. It has also been suggested that the act of squinting one's eye as a gesture of suspicion or amusement was likened to cocking a gun. The bottom line is that, although I like the Irish Gaelic theory for its simplicity, the existence of to cock one's eye tends to bolster the case for cockeyed having some connection, albeit several times removed, to the behaviour of roosters.
When coming across stories for the podcast, I quite often find stories that are fairly short. Sometimes I reject them because they're really too short for my purposes. But I have a little collection for this podcast that I'm putting together in a little segment called Short Stories. Hmm, highly original. Anyway, from the www.guardian.co.uk, our first short story. Viking Marauders Had Patterns Filed Into Their Teeth, and it's by Maeve Kennedy. Archaeologists say filed patterns in teeth of Viking warriors found in a mass grave in Dorset may have been to frighten opponents. The fashion for dental bling goes back 1,000 years, according to a new discovery by archaeologists. Long before contemporary trends for gold dental caps or teeth inlaid with diamonds became popular, young Viking warriors were having patterns filed into their teeth. If their intention was to intimidate the enemy, they failed. The evidence has come from front teeth, from a pit full of decapitated skeletons found during roadworks in Dorset, and now believed to be victims of a massacre of Viking invaders by local Britons. The front teeth have horizontal lines that were so neatly filed, archaeologists believe it must have been done by a skilled craftsman rather than by their owners, and the process undoubtedly would have been excruciating. David Score of Oxford Archaeology, the unit which has been studying the bones since they were discovered in a pit near Weymouth in 2009, said, It is difficult to say how painful the process of filing teeth may have been, but it wouldn't have been a pleasant experience. The purpose behind filed teeth remains unclear, but as we know, these men were warriors. It may have been to frighten opponents in battle or to show their status as a great fighter. The massive bones, 54 bodies and 51 skulls, all of young fit men, was a wholly unexpected discovery as archaeologists worked on the site of the Weymouth Relief Road. The Romans were first blamed, but carbon dating and isotope analysis of the bones gave a much later date of the 10th or 11th century and Scandinavian origin. One man came from north of the Arctic Circle, suggesting a rare defeat for a Viking marauding party. Many of the skeletons show brutal slash marks, with one bearing six cut marks on the back of the neck and other bones of hands and arms sliced through. Skulls, leg bones and rib cages had been piled up separately in the burial pit. There was no trace of clothing or possessions, suggesting the men were naked when they died and the missing heads are interpreted as evidence of gruesome souvenirs kept by their killers. And short story number two. How did Mozart die? We know the score. And it's written by Jennifer Walsh and it comes from the www.msnbc.msn.com website. If Wolfgang Amadeus Mozart had spent a few minutes basking in the sun, it might have forestalled his untimely death, researchers are saying. The sun would have upped the young composer's levels of vitamin D, an important vitamin in fighting off disease. Our bodies make vitamin D from ultraviolet B light from the sun, 
though it is also found in fish and a few other foods. In many places during the winters, ultraviolet B levels in sunlight are too low to make the vitamin in our skin. Where Mozart lived in Vienna, these low levels of UVB rays would have easily caused vitamin D deficiencies, two researchers write in a letter in the June issue of the journal Medical Problems of Performing Artists. D. William Grant of the Sunlight Nutrition and Health Research Centre in San Francisco and Stefan Pills of the Medical University of Graz in Austria suggest that the low levels of ultraviolet B rays during the winter, along with Mozart's nocturnal habits – he often wrote through the night and slept during the day – could have made him vitamin D deficient. Mozart did much of his composing at night, so he would have slept during much of the day. At the latitude of Vienna, 48 degrees north, it is impossible to make vitamin D from solar ultraviolet B irradiance for about six months of the year, the authors write. Mozart died on December 5, 1791, two to three months into the vitamin D winter. Mozart had been sickly for years. This deficiency could have led to an increased number of infections, especially a few months into winter. The writers hypothesise that the day Mozart died at the age of 35 was two to three months into the vitamin D winter when ultraviolet B rays are the lowest. Many theories have been raised about the nature of Mozart's death, ranging from head trauma to rheumatic fever. Vitamin D deficiencies have taken the lives of other composers, most notably Gustav Mahler who died in May 1911 of a bacterial infection around the lining of his heart. Such bacterial infections are easier to fight off when vitamin D levels are normal. Whether Mozart had low vitamin D levels may never be determined, his grave hasn't been identified. A skull that might be Mozart's has been analysed with inconclusive results. If researchers were able to find and exhume his body, they could examine it for indications of vitamin D deficiency, which would show in his bones. Short story number three. Tibetan singing bowls give up their chaotic secrets by Jason Palmer and this is from the www.bbc.co.uk. And there's a short video associated with this article at the show notes at www.origins.info. Click on the link to this article in the Origins show notes and then on the link to episode 113 and then on the link to this article. Ceremonial Tibetan singing bowls are beginning to give up their secrets. The water-filled bowls, when rubbed with a leather-wrapped mallet, 
exhibit a lively dance of water droplets as they emit a haunting sound. Now, slow motion video has unveiled just what occurs in the bowls. Droplets can actually bounce on the water's surface. A report in the journal Nonlinearity mathematically analyzes the effect and could shed light on other fluid processes, such as fuel injection. At the heart of the phenomenon are what are known as Faraday waves, which arise when a fluid such as water vibrates, constrained by a closed boundary, such as the edge of a singing bowl. As the frequency of the rubbing reaches that at which the bowl naturally vibrates, the bowl's edge begins rhythmically to change shape from one slightly oval shape into another. The energy of this shape shifting partly transfers to the water in which a range of interesting patterns can arise as the intensity of the rubbing increases. But at a certain point, the water becomes unstable and a fizzing display of droplets and chaotic waves results. Slow motion video of that transition now demonstrates how the irregular patterns of waves build up, the way that they crash into one another and how that frees droplets that fly into the air. What is more, under certain conditions, droplets can actually bounce repeatedly and skip on the surface of the water. This Faraday instability behaviour and the bouncing drops are familiar from scientific contexts. In 2009, John Bush from Massachusetts Institute of Technology used a range of fluids to demonstrate the effect in videos on a Discovery Channel program called Time Warp. A woman named Rosie Warburton saw these and sent me an email saying that she had seen the same behaviour in her Tibetan singing bowls, Professor Bush told BBC News. It was this email that inspired the study. However, the bowls exhibited Faraday wave behaviour that Professor Bush called odd by any standards, even to specialists in fluid dynamics such as ourselves. Professor Bush and his co-author Dennis Tavagny of the University of Liège in Belgium have now developed a mathematical model for how the water behaves in the bowls. Studies of this sort are potentially of broader interest for applications in which the development of tiny fluid droplets is a concern, such as fluid injectors or perfume atomizers, or they may simply be a matter of irresistible intrigue. Deducing robust criteria for droplet breakup is important in a number of engineering applications, Professor Bush said. The study was, however, purely curiosity-driven. Next time you visit one of those all-you-can-eat places, have a look at the cutlery if the fork that you're using seems oversized. Maybe the owners of that establishment have read this article. From the www.mnn.com website, Diners who eat with big forks consume less, a new study shows. Over a period of two days, researchers from the University of Utah in Salt Lake City monitored customers at an Italian restaurant during two lunches and two dinners.
with one of the study's authors and two research assistants serving as waiters, the researchers assigned either large forks or small forks to certain tables. The fork assignments were rotated after every meal and the ordered plates of food were weighed on a food scale before they were brought to the customers. After the plates were brought back to the kitchen, either empty, with leftovers to be disposed of or needing to be boxed to be taken home, they were weighed again. The findings showed that when the initial quantity of food was more, with a well-loaded plate, diners with small forks ate significantly more than those with large forks. That may be because the diners feel that they are not eating enough of their food when using the smaller fork and are therefore not satisfying their hunger, according to the researchers. The physiological feedback of feeling full comes with a time lag, the researchers explain in a statement. In its absence, diners focus on the visual cue of whether they are making any dent on the food on their plate to assess goal progress. When customers were given plates with small servings of food, however, the fork size did not affect the amount of food consumed. This may be because small servings allow diners to better visually gauge how much food they've eaten, while it's harder to tell how much progress has been made when eating from a large serving. People do not have clear internal cues about the appropriate quantity to consume, the researchers wrote in the current issue of the Journal of Consumer Research. They allow external cues, such as fork size, to determine the amount they should consume. And finally, from this set of short stories from the NewScientist.com, Second World War Bombers Changed the Weather. And this is an article by Michael Marshall. Allied bombing raids during the Second World War inadvertently experimented on the weather by producing huge contrails over southeast England. A study of one 1944 raid offers a rare opportunity to check our models on how contrails change temperatures. After listening to a radio program in which an elderly woman recalled seeing a wartime sky turn white with clouds as fleets of bombers took off, Roger Timmis of Lancaster Environment Centre in the UK realised that the planes could have affected the weather. Contrails are known to have several effects on climate. On the one hand, they act as a blanket, trapping heat that would otherwise escape into space. On the other, during the day, they reflect incoming sunlight, cooling the earth below more than is warmed by the other effect. But overall, the consensus among climatologists is that they warm the planet. 
In the 1940s, unlike today, there was hardly any civilian air traffic, so historical records offer an opportunity to test the Taytime effects. Pilots cared about contrails a lot, says Rob McKenzie, formerly of Lancaster University and now at the University of Birmingham in the UK. Aircraft were tracked using contrails and shot down, so pilots would report them. Using operational records from the US Army Air Force and the British Royal Air Force and archived weather data, Timmis and McKenzie realised they could compare temperatures immediately beneath a raid's flight path to those several kilometres upwind where there would have been no contrails. Conditions were ideal as one particular raid took off on the morning of the 11th of May 1944 with clear skies and enough moisture for contrails to form. Timmis and Mackenzie found that where the aircraft circled and assembled into formation, it was significantly cloudier and 0.8 degrees centigrade cooler than the area upwind of the bases. It's innovative to use his historical records, says David Lee of Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK. He says the documented cooling due to daytime contrails is entirely consistent with what is already known. Field studies of contrails are rare, says David Travis of the University of Wisconsin-Whitewater. Most of our understanding of their effects is based on model studies. Travis says studies like this McKenzie study could help change that. He previously found that temperatures were more variable when planes were grounded in the aftermath of 9-11, but faced criticism because the contrail effect couldn't be separated from natural variability in the weather. By comparing temperatures on the same day, but some kilometres apart, the bomber raid study was able to get around this problem. And for a little bit of mystery from the blogs.smithsonianmag.com website. When three British boys travelled to medieval England, or did they? Looking back, the really strange thing was the silence. The way the church bells stopped ringing as the little group of naval cadets neared the village the way even the ducks stood quiet and motionless by the shallow stream that ran across the road where the main street began. And when the boys thought about it afterwards, they recalled that even the autumn bird song faded as they neared the first houses. The wind had dropped to nothing, too. Not a leaf stirred on the trees they passed, and the trees appeared to cast no shadows. 
The street itself was quite deserted, not so odd perhaps for a Sunday morning in 1957, especially in the rural heart of England. But even the remotest British hamlets displayed some signs of modernity by then. Cars parked by the roadside, phone wires strung along the roads, aerials on roofs. And there was nothing of that sort in this village. In fact, the houses on the high street all looked ancient. They were ragged, hand-built, timber-framed. Almost medieval in appearance, one boy thought. The three, all Royal Navy cadets, walked up to the nearest building and pressed their faces to its grimy windows. They could see that it was some sort of butcher's shop, but what they glimpsed in the interior was even more unsettling, as one of them recalled for the author Andrew McKenzie. There were no tables or counters, just two or three whole oxen carcasses, which had been skinned and in places were quite green with age. There was a green painted door and windows with smallish glass panes, one at the front and one at the side, rather dirty looking. I remember that as we three looked through that window in disbelief at the green and mouldy green carcasses, the general feeling certainly was one of disbelief and unreality. Who would believe that in 1957 that the health authorities would allow such conditions? They peered into another house. It too had greenish, smeary windows, and it too appeared uninhabited. The walls had been crudely whitewashed, but the rooms were empty. The boys could see no possessions, no furniture, and they thought the rooms themselves appeared to be not of modern-day quality. Spooked now, the cadets turned back and hurried out of the strange village. The track climbed a small hill and they did not turn back until they had reached the top. Then one of the three remembered, suddenly we could hear the bells once more and saw the smoke rising from chimneys, though none of the chimneys were smoking when we were in the village. We ran for a few hundred yards as if to shake off the weird feeling. What happened to those three boys on that October morning more than 50 years ago remains something of a mystery. They were taking part in a map reading exercise that ought to have been straightforward. The idea was to navigate their way across four or five miles of countryside to a designated point, then return to base and report what they had seen which, if all went well, should have been the picturesque Suffolk village of Kersey. But the more they thought about it, the more the cadets wondered whether something very strange had occurred to them. Years later, William Lang, the Scottish boy who led the group, put it this way. It was a ghost village, so to speak. It was almost as if we had walked back in time. I experienced an overwhelming feeling of sadness and depression in Kersey, but also a feeling of unfriendliness and unseen watches, which sent shivers up one's back. I wondered if we knocked at a door to ask a question, who might have answered it? It doesn't bear thinking about. Lang, who came from Perthshire in the highlands of Scotland, was a stranger to this part of the east of England. So were his friends Michael Crowley from Worcestershire and Ray Baker, a Cockney. That was the point. All three were 15 years old and had only recently signed up to join the Royal Navy. 
That made it easy for the petty officers in charge of their training to confirm that they had reached the village they were supposed to just by checking their descriptions. As it was, their superiors, Lang recalled, were rather sceptical when they told them of their odd experience, but they laughed it off and agreed that we'd seen Kersey all right. There the matter rested until the late 1980s when Lang and Crowley, by then both living in Australia, talked by phone and chewed over the incident. Lang had always been troubled by it. Crowley, it emerged, did not remember it in as much detail as his old friend. But he did think that something strange had happened as he recalled the silence, the lack of aerials and streetlights and the bizarre butcher's shop. That was enough to prompt Lang to write to the author of a book he'd read, Andrew McKenzie, a leading member of the Society for Psychical Research. Mackenzie was intrigued by Bill Lang's letter and recognised that it might describe a case of retrocognition, the SPR term for what we would call a time-slip case. Looking at the details, he thought it was possible that the three cadets had seen Kersey not as it was in 1957, but as it had been centuries earlier. A long correspondence, he and Lang exchanged letters for two years, and a foray into local libraries with the help of an historian from Kersey helped to confirm that view. In 1990, Lang flew to England and the two men walked through the village, reliving the experience. What makes this case particularly interesting is that retrocognition is probably the rarest reported of psychical phenomena. There have only ever been a handful of cases of which by far the most famous remains the Versailles incident of 1901. On that occasion, two highly educated British women, the principal and vice-principal of St Hugh's College, Oxford, were wandering through the grounds of the Palace of Versailles outside Paris when they had a series of experiences that later convinced them they had seen the gardens as they were before the French Revolution. Detailed research suggested that one of the figures they encountered might have been Marie Antoinette, Louis XVI's wife, the Queen of France. Mackenzie's research into the Kersey incident led him to very similar conclusions, and he featured it as the lead case in a book he published on retrocognition, Adventures in Time, published in 1997. Several factors led him to conclude that the cadet's experience had been genuine. The obvious sincerity of Lang and his friend Crowley, Ray Baker was also traced, but turned out to remember nothing of the experience. The detail of their recollections and a few persuasive discoveries. Among the details that impressed Mackenzie most was the realisation that the house that Lang had identified as a butcher's shop, which was a private residence in 1957 and remained one when Kersey was revisited in 1990, dated to about 1350, and actually had been a butcher's shop at least as early as 1790. The author was also struck by the suggestive fact that the season seemed to change as the cadets entered the village. Inside Kersey, Lang recalled, it was Vedant and the trees that were magnificent green colour one finds in spring or early summer. Then there was the puzzle of the village church. 
Lang noted that the party had not seen it after they descended into the village and the pall of silence fell. Indeed, he explicitly recalled that there was no sign of a church. I would certainly have seen it as I had a field of observation of 360 degrees and Crowley likewise recalled no church or pub. All of which seemed hard to explain since St Mary's Kersey dates to the 14th century and is the principal landmark in the district, readily visible to anybody passing along the main street. Mackenzie, basing his case on the history of St Mary's, interpreted this anomaly as evidence to help pinpoint the likely date on which Lang and his companions visited the village. Noting the construction of the tower was halted by the ravages of the Black Death, 1348-49, which killed half of the population of Kersey, Mackenzie concluded that the cadets might have seen it as it had been in the aftermath of the plague, when the shell of the half-constructed church would have been hidden by trees. And since Lang and Crowley also recalled that the village buildings had glazed windows, a rarity in the Middle Ages, Mackenzie further suggested that the most likely date was circa 1420, when the church remained unfinished, but the village was growing rich from the wool trade. It's a great story, but looked at through the eyes of an historian, is there some other explanation for the events of 1957? Well, the first thing to say about Kersey is that it is exactly the sort of place that might have confused a group of strangers entering it for the first time. The village is certainly ancient. It was first mentioned in an Anglo-Saxon will of circa 900. And it still boasts a large number of buildings dating from the medieval period. So many that it has become a favourite location for filmmakers and is noted as the most picturesque village in South Suffolk. Among its attractions are the 14th century Bell Inn and several thatched half-timbered buildings. It's not hard to imagine that these striking remnants might linger in the memory longer than the more humdrum architecture alongside them, producing, over time, the notion that a witness had visited a place considerably older than expected. As it turns out, there's a good explanation for the cadet's failure to notice wires and aerials in Kersey. The village was not hooked up to the mains until the early 1950s, and then only after protests from the Suffolk Preservation Society, which argued strenuously for the preservation of its skyline. The revealing outcome of these protests may be found in the British Parliamentary Papers of the period, which reported that negotiations have resulted in the overhead line being carried behind the houses on either side of the street and a cable being laid underground at the only point where the street has to be crossed. What though of the other details? When I first read Mackenzie's account, I was worried by the mention of windows, since glass was expensive and thus rare in the 14th and 15th centuries. And while it's possible that Kersey's wealth did make it an exception in the period, one wonders why, if it was wealthy, its houses would have been devoid of furniture. There are other problems with the dating too, not least the discrepancy between the boy's description, 
and Mackenzie's wealthy village of 1420. Yet what bothers me most about the cadet's account is that something that Mackenzie never thought about, and that's the question of whether a medieval village would have had a butcher's shop. Such places did exist, but they were found almost exclusively in towns. Meat was expensive, which meant that most peasants' diets remained largely vegetarian, and when animals were slaughtered in a village, for a Saint's Day feast perhaps, they were hard to keep fresh and would have been consumed immediately. Yes, meat consumption did rise steadily in the late 14th century, but the evidence we have suggests that beef was only rarely eaten. In the village of Sedgeford in nearby Norfolk, only three cattle were slaughtered a year around this time. Sedgeford was only about half the size of Kersey, admittedly, but even so it stretches credulity to imagine a shop with two or three whole ox carcasses in stock as early as 1420, especially when it's remembered that Kersey had its own weekly market where fresh meat would have been available and which would have provided fierce competition. What this suggests, I think, is that the cadet's experience is better explained some other way. Some key elements of the incident, the silence, the lack of life, are highly suggestive of derealisation, a psychological condition in which the real world seems unreal. As was the Versailles case, indeed. Mackenzie notes that when I quoted to Mr Lang Miss Mobley's description of the trees in the park at Versailles being flat and lifeless like a wood worked in tapestry, he replied that this was spot on. And the lack of agreement between witnesses, remember that Roy Baker recalled nothing unusual about Kersey, is also striking. Of course none of this solves the mystery of why two cadets, Lang and Crowley, were in such close agreement. But here it's worth pointing out that there is a reason why time-slip cases usually have multiple witnesses. The passage of time and a process of mutual reinforcement as the case is reviewed again and again accentuate the odd and smooth out differences. Just as a study of reports of the Indian rope trick published in Nature demonstrated that the strangest accounts were those said to have been witnessed longest ago. No, I'd love to believe it. Really I would. But without better evidence, I can't quite bring myself to concede that these three youths really did travel back in time.
The music for today's podcast came from the musicalley.com website and the bandwidth was provided by TalkShoe at www.talkshoe.com. And remember, I do make an extended version of this podcast and you can obtain that by visiting the show notes at www.origins.info. Thank you to those of you who became friends of the podcast in the interim between this and the last episode and to those of you who have sent me email or provided feedback for the show. All are greatly appreciated. And remember, if you'd like to provide feedback, please do it through iTunes or Podcast Alley or via email. And if you'd like to email me, it's origins at origins.info. Until next time, it's thank you everyone and... Bye for now.